is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon. I'm Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company on the program this afternoon. In the next half an hour on the Queensland Country Hour, the Queensland Government says it's not made a decision about gill netting in the Gulf. We'll hear from a researcher who's spent a lot of time looking at some of the endangered species and from the commercial fishing sector about their concerns. And how much Australian timber was used in the building of your place? Do you know? There's one organisation that would like to see our biggest housing policy change include a requirement for Australian timber. We'll take a look at that before half past 12. As always, I'd like to hear from you this afternoon. You can send me a text message on 0487993222, particularly if you know anything about the timber used in your place. I'd be keen to know. I have uh, spent some time in some lovely old Queenslanders that have some really great stories that are genuinely from the foundations up. So tell me a bit about the uh, the timber at your place, 0487993222. We'll talk about Australian timber and housing before half past 12. But first this afternoon, I'd like to introduce you to some brave and courageous rural women. And being brave and courageous is the advice from the chair of AgriFutures. Cathy McGowan last night presented the National AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. And whilst fresh from announcing this year's winner, who you will meet very soon, Cathy says there's a lot more to what goes into this program than just a glamorous ceremony in Parliament House. As she explains to Amelia Bernasconi, the program's about identifying the future leaders of the agricultural industry to solve some of its biggest challenges. Because it's not just the award and the money, it is that expectation now that not only these women, but women everywhere step into the leadership role because we can see what happens when people do that and when women do that. So we really want them to be role models and inspirations for lots and lots of other young women, middle-aged women, older women to to turn up to events, to speak up and then to step into leadership roles. So no, I I, I didn't get to be the the chooser, but I do get to be um, the mentor, I suppose, Mm. and the encourager and, and and to be able to say it's worth doing because you can really make your communities better if you're brave enough to become and be a leader. It must be so rewarding to be imparting this wisdom to the next generations. So there's two or three things about it. To, to be in this position and to be able to say to women, agriculture is a good career is one thing. To all be able to say, and to be a leader is even, I think, even better um, to be sit next to the minister at dinner and talk to him and, and to belong to your team, like my community's here tonight. And then there's a whole lot of mothers who've bought their daughters and aunts who've bought their nieces. So and, and I get introduced to them because, you know, that generational thing and be able to say to those young women, yeah, you're in the right place at the right time and be brave and courageous. Move outside your comfort zone because if you just stay safe, nothing will ever change and it certainly won't get better. So, yeah, step in and who knows where you end up. You know, you might, you might become the chair of AgriFutures, very likely will become, you know, a, certainly a position. And the minister said it tonight that they're absolutely committed to more women holding these positions. So, so the timing is good if you're interested in that sort of work, which I hope, hope people listening to your program are. 
Do you think there's still challenges in regional Australia in agriculture, particularly for women as we grow the workforce? You know, people are realising that mm. you don't have to live in the city, that there's great places outside of the big mm. smoke. I don't think the challenges are, challenges are ever going to go away. Mm. You solve one challenge of sort of maybe um, the tyranny of distance through through social media or internet and then something else presents itself. Uh, and, and it's always a challenge man working in an environment that constantly changes. It's always a challenge... Uh, Find, I think regardless of the circumstances, it's always a challenge working out how do you become the change you want to be and it's always a challenge building teams and bringing people along with you. So I don't think that changes. But what's really particular, I think, in rural and regional Australia now and is this transformation that we're going to face as we head towards net zero. And now more than ever we need voices to be part of the discussion and hopefully at the end of this transformation we can make our communities better and that's that's really what I want I want to see it. But we need people to become part of the discussion. We need them to really step into the space and say, well, if we could have we could have the Hunter Valley transformed or we could have South Australia transformed through this whole energy transformation, let's be let's do it by design rather than by accident. What are you hoping to see for twenty twenty four? So the applications are open for the next one. So I am really, really looking forward because it's not only the people who get to be state finalists there's always a team of other people who have applied and I get to meet you know, the five or six women who didn't get to be a finalist. Uh, so, and I get to get that sense of huge diversity of what's happening. So I don't know what will bubble up next time, but it'll be a surprise. AgriFutures Chair Cathy McGowan speaking with Amelia Berners-Sconey and talk about no rest, announced last night and the applications open again this morning. Now this year's winner announced last night was flower farmer Nikki Davey who has helped develop technology that connects growers and consumers. She says the $20,000 prize will help her expand the platform to other fresh produce. We are relatively new flower farmers ourselves and so when I we've, we took over our family farm in 2019, started by moving into truffles and then our, my co-founder, which is my cousin Jade, her husband Hayden, they call themselves the accidental flower farmers. So they bought a farm, just so happened to have a flower farm on it. Um, they convinced us to do a trial patch of flowers. So I say we're the accidental flower farmers by proxy as a result of that. Uh, but what happened was, you know, when we took over the farm, the first thing I did was look at what technology was available to be able to support us. And there was just nothing that was supporting micro small scale growers. So we literally built what we wished was available when we first started. And it's really resonated because our pain points um, have, you know, transcended borders. We went global in the second month of launching our, our online platform and app, and it's just continued to grow since then. It's awesome. Tell us a bit about the community that you build in those early days in particular. Yeah, so we have a real focus on those micro small scale growers in particular. Um, the reason being is that they they produce some of the highest quality flowers within the industry as well. And a lot of them are needing to sort of, when they're looking to sell their flowers, they do it in lots of different ways, but there was no aggregated view or it wasn't easy for flower, you know, florists, floral designers, those sorts of things to be able to easily locate 
and purchase locally grown flowers. And COVID really put a spotlight on that when the imports were limited and all of a sudden the flower uh, supply was really sort of limited and it was hard to actually get your hands on those. And so we realized that there was an opportunity to support those growers. And so we built our platform in a way that was inclusive of all sized growers, but with a particular focus on those micro small scale. We wanna remove the need for them to have to build and manage their own website. And we wanna help bring consumers to them to meet in the middle. And of course, the seasonal nature of, of flowers. I mean, where were what were our biggest competitors internationally? How have we seen the tables turn and really put local growers back on the Australian map? Yeah, so the majority of flowers that sort of come into Australia tend to sort of come from South America, from Africa. Um, but because Australia has such strict biosecurity rules as part of that, it means that flowers, when they come into Australia, they go through this really rigorous process with really harsh chemicals that are used as part of that. And so to, so often we, you know, we don't realise that you, you know, you buy a bunch of flowers. We don't, we don't tend to celebrate the provenance of flowers the same way we do with produce. And so it's not uncommon to buy flowers, have them sitting on our kitchen table and have no idea that actually they've been doused in these really harsh chemicals. And so we want to celebrate that seasonality and everything that comes with that as well. That's the 2023 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award national winner, Victoria's Nikki Davey from Grown Not Flown, speaking with Amelia Bernasconi. It still blows my mind sometimes that we uh, have flowers travelling all over the world, both from here and coming to here. And a shout out to, to Emma Gibbons from the Sunshine Coast, who was Queensland's finalist. You can read more about her booming dog treat business online if you head online to abc.net.au slash rural Queensland well represented at those awards. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's a quarter past 12 and in about 10 minutes time we're going to talk about housing and Australian timber. I'd like to know if you know what timber was used to make your place. Maybe you had a real hands-on approach to what uh, what was in there. Maybe it was maybe it was built in the 1800s and uh the timber's a mystery, but I'd love to hear from you. 0487993222 is the number to send me a text. John at Tolga has done that. G'day, John. And yeah, do pop your name on there so I can say g'day. He says, we built a home, a new home in 2021. Most of the timber was Australian, but due to Morrison government's home building program at the time, there were building materials shortages and price increases. Some of the timber in the roof trusses came from New Zealand, Eritrea. It's interesting you talk about supply. We're going to have a look at that very issue before half past 12. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. The Queensland government says no decision has been made about closing large parts of the Gulf of Carpentaria to gillnet fishing. A map was presented to commercial fishing representatives last week highlighting 11 new proposed areas for net closures. Commercial fishers say the move could cripple their industry, which produces more than $100 million worth of barramundi, king salmon and grey mackerel each year. But a scientist who works in the Gulf says some net-free areas are needed to protect critically endangered sawfish. Dr Barbara Ruinga is a Principal Scientist and Director of Sharks and Rays Australia. 
we do our field work. So in our field work, we use gillnets as well to catch sawfish. And I mean, gillnets are completely indiscriminate. The only discriminatory factor about them is your mesh size. So anything that's smaller than the mesh will go through. Yeah, so they are quite effective at catching sawfish. And yeah. Have you had concerns that gillnetters were um, interacting with sawfish in with enough frequency that it was impacting the populations? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I can tell you a story where in 2016, when we started our research, um, we found drying racks out in the field that contained sawfish fins on them. So obviously somebody had finned sawfish and, and was drying those fins. And this, this was 2016. Well, the animals got protected in 2009. And we also get, you know, donations of sawfish saws. And sometimes they come from fishers directly. And sometimes they, um, you know, come from members of the general public. And we know that fisheries interact with sawfish. Are you supportive, Barbara? And it might sound like a silly question asking a conservationist this, but are you supportive of what is being proposed in terms of the extensiveness of the, the net closures? You just said I'm a conservationist. I want to set that straight. Um, I'm actually a neurobiologist and zoologist, and I went, I did my PhD on sawfish and then created Sharks and Rays Australia to take my research out in the field and then realise that these animals are, even in Queensland, under threat, right? So I'm a conservationist based on the data that we collect. So you want to distinguish the fact that you're not just ideologically of the view that there should be net closures. If you're of the view there are net closures, it's because of what you've seen with your data and your research. Yeah, exactly that. And I'm also in the working group as a research member. So we have conservation members in there, but we have research members as well. Uh, Barbara, what do you make of the, the closures? That They seem quite extensive when you see them on a map. Do you think they're warranted? So I think when, when I look at the biology of sawfish, um, it would be quite important to have regularly spaced closures in the Gulf to look after those species, because what we see genetically is that these animals have subpopulations that are genetically different, um, and that's based on their breeding biology. So sawfish are like sea turtles. We call that Philopatric, so it means that the animals come back likely to the same river mouth where they were born and then give birth there. And then the animals don't have very large home ranges, right? Um, so they don't, they don't move that far. Um, and so if, if there's regularly spaced closed areas present in the Gulf, that, that would provide a safe haven for sawfish and also maintain that genetic diversity that we would like to see. Area 10 is a very large area of net closure from the tip of Cape York down to about Cape Kiawea. Is this a really important habitat for the sawfish that you study? I mean, I'm guessing that this was proposed because the, the, there isn't that much barra fishery up north um, in the in northern parts of, of, of the Queensland side of the Gulf. From our data, we can definitely say like Port Musgrave, so um, Mapoon area where you've got the Ducey and the Wenlock running into it. As far as we understand or as far as I can see, it's the only place in the world where we, you will catch all four species of sawfish in nets right next to each other. So this is a hugely important place globally. Um, and in the Weeper region, we, we have found nursery grounds for at least two species of sawfish. So that's, that's um, in that map, you can see that with um, um, Albatross Bay as well being proposed. Um, if these closures were to see all fishing disappear, or net fishing anyway, disappear from the Gulf, which is the claim being made by some, w would that be worth it to protect sawfish? I think these are two separate questions, right? Because I don't see how these proposed closures here on this map would close 
all gill nets in the Gulf. Like there is a lot of rivers and there's a lot of coastal areas in there where you can still set nets. So that's the one side. But the second side is I, I would like to see fisheries that are sustainable when it comes to a threatened species. So fisheries that provide um, fish for the general public, but at the same time, um, don't allow our threatened species to decline even further or to even go extinct locally or, you know, across the board. Dr. Barbara Ruinga from Sharks and Rays Australia speaking with Adam Stephen. She sits on the Sustainable Fisheries Strategy Working Group for the inshore of the Gulf of Carpentaria. And also on that group, but representing the fishing wholesalers and retailers, is Sean McAtamney from Independent Seafood Producers. He says if the proposed net-free zones go ahead, millions of meals of locally caught seafood will have to be replaced with imported product. Oh, look, there is no doubt that there would be uh, increased pressure on imported substitutes in the marketplace. Um, it would certainly displace um, that requirement to, to that, that area of the supply chain. And, um, and depending on the species, some or there or all part of that would actually come from foreign imports. Certainly in a mackerel context, that would have to come from other, other um, fishing uh, countries on, around, uh, around the region. Indonesia produces a lot of uh, mackerel. Uh, certainly that would increase the requirement for fish to come from that area. And I think, you know, we should note here that uh, Australia and Queensland fisheries are world's best practice um, uh, in, in, uh, in a lot of areas. And that's not to say that they don't have areas that they can continue to pr- improve. We've been on a constant improvement process since 2017 with the current uh, Labor government uh, through their current fisheries strategy. Um, and um, Minister Ferner and the Premier have overseen that whole process. And, and throughout that process, the industry has uh, continued to adapt to a changing policy setting and increased pressures from other stakeholder groups. And, and the commercial sector has absorbed all the structural adjustments uh, as we've gone through that process. And, and uh, yet again, now we're seeing commercial sector having to yield, uh, yield further ground uh, which ultimately will put pressure on uh, protein sources to come from other areas. And, and I travel quite a bit in the role that I do for our company and, and, uh, and see the fishy context in, in other countries. And I can assure you that the, uh, they're less than desirable and certainly nothing near the standard of Australian fishing um, regulations. And, uh, and it, it, it deeply concerns me that all the policies like this and additional net-free zones, all we're doing is displacing, displacing um, Australia's food security somewhere else on earth um, at what cost? Well, I mean, the, the the conservationists argue that the cost is the lives of critically endangered sawfish, dolphins, um, turtles, dugongs. Would you admit that there is interactions between the nets and, and those species and that does need to be better managed, regardless of whether it's through net-free zones or otherwise? Yes, and there needs to be, there needs to be, there is interaction. Um, the, uh, the degree of interaction uh, is is in some part measured, and yes, it's an area of the commercial sector that we need better reporting on. But I'd equally say that a lot of the NGOs that report uh, that that these species are uh, under uh, under threat, they also can't produce any scientific data to show they're under threat. So it's uh, it seems alarming to me that the solution to that is to shut all fishing down. There are other stakeholders that participate. I'm an active recreational fisherman in Queensland. Love going and catching a fish with my son. Uh, like being able to access and equally go out and catch something, but you know there's no measured catch other than other than uh, boat ramp surveys, which the, our own uh, our own fisheries department admits that the data on that is is not sufficient enough. We have uh, charter fishermen who do not logbook any of their catches in Queensland. The indigenous sector there is limited data. 
So there's four key stakeholders to this fishery and one stakeholder seems to carry the can all the time. That's Sean McAdamney from Independent Seafood Producers speaking with Adam Stephen. And the Queensland Minister for Agricultural Industry Development and Fisheries, Mark Ferner, provided a statement to the ABC. He says the Queensland Government has established a future fishing task force to advise on the implementation of the commitments made, including establishing of additional gillnet-free zones in the Gulf of Carpentaria and other locations of high ecological value. He says a, uh, a map was presented to the Inshore Fisheries Working Group in Cairns and at that meeting a summary of several potential net-free zones had been discussed and presented to members. The list of potential closes was derived from the community following the media release or through submissions to the Future Fishing Task Force. He says claims that decisions have been made about the future of Gulf net fisheries are not correct. No such decisions have been made. No decisions have been made at this point in time. DAF will also attend an annual general meeting in Corumba next month to continue to engage with the industry on these matters. It's 25 past 12. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. We'll check in with the Weather Bureau in the next 10 minutes about the week ahead. There are still some high fire dangers getting around Queensland and some marine wind warnings as well to talk about. In the meantime, if you've got anything you'd like to talk about, send me a text 0487 993 after the weather. We'll be talking about mangoes and the fundraisers associated with them for a lot of Queensland schools, how they're shaping up with the season ahead that's still to come on the Queensland Country Hour. Should the government make using Australian timber a priority when building public housing? Now, perhaps a little unsurprisingly, the Australian Forest Products Association certainly thinks so. The organisation would like to see the federal government commit to using Australian timber for any builds as part of its $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund. Now, this fund could pass Parliament today after a deal with the Greens was secured on Monday, and it includes 30,000 new and affordable social homes to be built in its first five years. A spokesperson for the Forest Products Association, Joe Prevadello, says using timber in public housing would help meet net zero commitments. Well, obviously at the moment, Australia is facing a number of different policy challenges. Uh, The supply of housing is one big challenge, but also finding solutions to fight climate change and to meet our net zero targets is another challenge. And in the forestry industry, we think that you can use timber to actually solve those two policy problems or at least make some inroads into finding some solutions for them. So you can build new houses out of timber. Uh, By doing that, you increase the supply of housing, uh, but you also are locking up carbon by doing that as well. If you use more timber in the construction of a new home, you're locking up more carbon from the atmosphere and that helps fight climate change. So you can actually solve a couple of policy challenges here through the use of timber. Obviously, when it comes to public housing, cost has to be a big consideration for the government. You've explained a bit with the environmental, but why should the government potentially go with timber if there are other lower cost options? Well, because it's important that timber is considered because it can, like I said, it can help solve multiple policy challenges. 
I don't think there's anybody out there doubting that climate change is one of those policy challenges that the federal government needs to be focused on addressing, and they are, but they have to find practical solutions for how you can actually address the problem and meet those net zero targets. And when you have a policy challenge on the huge scale alongside fighting climate change, like making sure there's enough housing for the country and that everybody is adequately home, it just seems to make sense that you would combine, I guess, the the way you try to address those challenges through a huge policy like the Housing Australia Future Fund and thereby considering timber uh, more favourably. And there's enough timber at the moment to be able to support these projects? Well, that's an interesting point. We do have uh, a decent supply of timber in the supply line right at the moment, but what we do know is in the decades ahead, we won't have the supply of timber that we need to meet demand nationally. So what this policy could do is it could actually refocus decision makers in terms of the need to get more trees planted in the ground to service the demand of the future. Obviously, timber is a very slow-growing commodity. It takes about 30 years to grow a softwood pine tree from a seedling right through to a fully mature tree that can be harvested and can create structural timber through the milling process. So decisions need to be made a long way ahead of when you need that timber. So not only should we be using timber now to fight climate change, but we also need to refocus and think about how we get more trees planted in the ground today so that we have enough timber in the future when it'll be in greater demand, certainly at a point in time when the world is more conscious about the climate credentials of timber as well over other materials. That's Joe Prevedello from the Australian Forest Produce Products Association speaking with Elsie Adamo. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's half past 12. Join Becky Cole for Saturday Night Country. These songs are fabulous. Sometimes funny, close to the bone at times, edgy. I'm a daughter of a butcher, so put on a barbecue. <laughs> a bit of a dog with a bone. Because, you know, it's like first impressions are very lasting. If I'm in one place more than a couple of days, it's a bit of a shock. Australian country music. Join Becky Cole. Oh, my gosh, yeah. For Saturday Night Country. balls. Online and on ABC Radio. In the next 10 minutes, good news for avocado producers if you're hoping to shift a few more trays this season and whether or not trays of mangoes will be available and what that might mean for your average school fundraiser. We'll take a look at that next. Right now, though, let's get the latest from the Weather Bureau. Phelan Hanafi is the forecaster on duty. Good afternoon, Phelan. Good afternoon, indeed. Now, I saw that there were some showers predicted, but have we seen much activity yet across Queensland in terms of moisture? Yeah, in terms of the shower activity, it's mainly been the southeast and up along the north tropical coast we've seen the showers. And we saw, you know, 24-hour totals there of up to just around the 50 mil or just over there about the Cassowary coast. And further showers streaming in there, particularly now north of, from about Innisfail northward, that's where the bulk of the shower activity is at the moment. Uh, so far, just some pockets of maybe 10 to 20 mil isolated from that, but it's moved along pretty quickly here due to a very brisk southeasterly airflow, which has been very gusty. We've seen gusts again uh, this morning of around the 60 kilometres an hour or a little bit more there along parts of the exposed tropical east coast. And 
that's going to continue for the rest of today. Well, yes, and I do know you've got some marine wind warnings uh, in place as well. Uh, yes, indeed, yeah, and they'll stick around probably for the next, uh, at least next two to three days anyway, very much from the central coast right up to the to the uh, peninsula coast as well, and also over the southeast gulf with those drier southeasterlies getting through here as well. Now, those trade flows will gradually ease as we go into the weekend, uh, as that ridge that's really helping, you know, firm up that trade flow relaxes. Will that mean less shower activity over the days ahead? Yeah, it does indeed. So showers really, today is the peak of us really in terms of showers. Tomorrow, a lot less showers around, uh, much more isolated there up along the North Tupple Coast. So most areas probably getting away with a, a dry day tomorrow up along the North Tupple Coast, just maybe some isolated activity around the escarpments. And a similar setup for Friday as well. So a lot less showers around, mostly just partly cloudy conditions. We will see the showers will probably tick up again as we go over the weekend, particularly up in the North Tropical Coast. Elsewhere along the East Coast, uh, should get away with dry, mostly dry conditions, but I'm afraid for the North Tropical Coast, another uh, another round of showers to come through the second half of this weekend and early next week. And what will all of that activity mean for temperatures? Yeah, with the southeasterly winds, keeping things pretty fresh across most of the state, but we will see the winds in, across the, the south turn more northerly or northeasterly over the coming days. And that's going to see conditions warm up there across the, particularly the southwest and southern interior. So the daytime max is here getting up into, you know, the low, low 30s, even the mid 30s there in the southwest. Uh, come later this week, come Friday and the weekend. So warmer conditions in the south, though fresher and a little bit on the cooler side across more northern areas. And when might we expect to see that change? Well, as we go into next week, we'll see uh, probably the next trough feature that'll move into the far southwest, probably during Tuesday or Wednesday. Ahead of that, it's going to draw down the heat. So we'll see the temperatures probably warm more broadly across the state as well. Uh, very warm conditions in the southern half of the state. You know, temperatures could range anywhere from 5 to 10 degrees above average during Tuesday and Wednesday. And then we'll probably see that cooler southwesterly come behind that system through the second half of next week. So temperatures cool off again. The main feature of that will be probably not so much any potential rainfall, but it may elevate the fire dangers again. Mm. So obviously that will be a watch point, particularly with the, any ongoing wildfires across uh, some of the central districts. Well, yes, I was going to ask, there are some high fire dangers in place today, but with that warming at the start of next week, are we likely to see those fire con- conditions change? Uh, yes, indeed, probably extending further south. So today with the dry, gusty um, southeastly airflow, it's keeping, keeping those fire dangers elevated across central and northern areas, particularly the interior parts. Uh, with those warmer conditions, though, we'll see them increase across more southern areas, the southern interior parts, as we go into early next week. And then with that, that potential trough feature, that could you know, elevate them further as we get a, you know, a drier and potentially gustier southerly airflow or southwesterly change moving behind that system. So fire weather may be a concern uh, through the middle of next week as that, that next weather system rolls through. Any other features we need to be aware of at this stage, Phelan? I think that's the main features. I think it's mainly uh, around the fire weather focus, really, over the next 10 days. With that, with that activity mid-next week and that potential wind change, certainly a watch point in terms of fire weather. We'll keep the Bureau's website bookmarked. Thank you very much for your time on the Queensland Country Hour. My pleasure, as always.
That is Phelan Hanafi, the forecaster at the Weather Bureau. Uh, remember, you can always get the latest warnings at their website, bom.gov.au, or you can head to ABC Emergency and get the latest warnings there across multiple emergency agencies and also some good advice if you've uh, had a bit of a, a spark of inspiration to look at your bushfire survival plan, for example, this week or take a bit of a close look at it this weekend. It's a good opportunity to do so and you can get some information about that online at abc.net.au emergency. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. It's 24 to 1. I'd love to hear from you on the Queensland Country Hour. 0487993222 is the number to send me a text message. We're talking about timber and the timber in your home. Uh, I'd be keen to know if you've got a story behind yours, 0487993222. Now, who have I got here? I've got Brant who says uh, he relocated a century-old Queenslander from Gordon Vale, south of Cairns, to Cooya Beach near Port Douglas, saving it from being demolished and destined for landfill. It's chock-a-block with silky oak and table and cedar with many tonnes of carbon locked up in its construction more than 100 years ago. He says it beggars belief that so many solid old timber homes with their awesome craftsmanship get trashed and sent to landfill. What a waste of resources and a snub to our built heritage. Thank you for sharing the story of your home, Brant. And if you, it's, a, it's lovely to see that you value it so much. I'd love to hear from you if you've got a similar story, 0487993222. Maybe you're attempting to build at the moment and trying to source some of that Australian timber. I'd love to know if you've experienced any issues with that, 0487 double nine three triple two now bowen mangoes are an australian summer staple and we're very proud of them here in queensland for some rural schools though the fruit is much more than a sweet treat the mango fundraiser initiative from north queensland sends mangoes straight from the farm to schools and community organizations who need a bit of an extra boost of financial support But this year's mango shortage has caused buying prices to rise and teachers and parents are now wondering if the fundraiser will be enough to help keep their communities afloat. On his family's farm in Garoo, North Queensland, Daniel Lefer is keeping a close eye on his mango trees as inconsistent seasons become more frequent. For my father and uncle, it's always been very consistent. Mangoes, especially KPs, they are inconsistent yielders, but... There's always something. Um, There's a lot of variation, but there's always a a decent crop and there's always money to be made in mangoes. Two years ago, we had um, an exceptionally low yield uh, where our normal would probably be around uh, 20% of what our our average production was, um, and that was unprecedented. Like I say, there's there's a lot of fluctuation, but but we've never had anything like that. Two years on... The writing is on the wall. We were looking at the trees and there was, there was nothing coming, but there were signs that there was something coming. And normally, if it wasn't for two years ago, we'd say, that's okay, the flowers are coming, um, it's, it's going to yield. they're going to yield. Um, but given two years ago, we were quite apprehensive um, and, it, and it's looking like it is going to be somewhat similar to two years ago. Daniel's mango trees won't be yielding as much fruit this season and it essentially comes down to the trees being tired. This year, one thing that's hurt it is that there was a, a really large yield last year, and so that's depleted carbohydrate levels in the trees. We had a we had some very cold spells last year, so that probably caused the mangoes to have a really big flowering. 
and so that they depleted all their carbohydrate levels and so there was there wasn't left there wasn't anything left in the tank for this year and so that coupled with the slightly warmer uh, winters I think resulted in a, in a low low flowering but for Daniel it won't just be the supermarkets missing out on the mangoes schools will be too that's because he runs the mango fundraiser a business that started out as an effort to reduce food waste on the farm. It was initially started as a bit of a small thing because we had all these, uh, what we knew were quality fruit, but um, the, the shops didn't, didn't want to touch them. And so, so we started um, the Mango Fundraiser where we'd sell trays to schools, which they could then sell on for fundraising purposes. And um, it's actually grown into probably the larger chunk of our business, of our mango business, uh, where we sell most of our trays through through the mango fundraiser. Um, this year uh, is looking like it's uh, just like two years ago. It looks like it make, is making it going to make it a big challenge to meet uh, to meet the number of orders. However, uh, we've made an adjustment to, to the size of trays that we're selling, and so with with that, we, we're pretty confident that we're going to be able to meet those demands. One such school which gets involved with the mango fundraising is Ramsey State School. Located about half an hour south of Toowoomba in southern Queensland, the small school of around 45 students easily sells over 400 trays of mangoes each year. PNC Treasurer Anna Hearn said the money raised from the mangoes helped fill gaps in the students' education. We do things like fun student camps. We do the bus runs into town for the kids to do swimming lessons. We also get things like diverse groups come to the school community so um, a NAIDOC week etc we get the, an Aboriginal group to come out and teach the kids all about the land and their culture, things like that I mean we can see any gaps in the education that they're receiving like if there's something that we can do a little bit differently uh, we have built a lot of things, we put things up like playground equipment News of less mangoes has Anne worried. Being able to fundraise for the future turns me because there's so so many things that I think are important for the kids to have access to and I think without the PNC being able to partly fund, number one, I think parents are going to struggle to, to pay and we're trying to supplement that. So in the future, I just worry that the kids are going to miss out. For grower Daniel Lefer, he said he had no choice but to adjust the number of trays available and the price of them. What we did is rather than adjust the number of trays that we could sell, we just downsized the trays so that way that everyone can still have their fundraiser. Um, it's just <laughs> they'll be getting a little less mango in the tray. When you try and put a cost on a tray, uh, one of the things that you have to take into account is cost of production. And when you have a low yield, that automatically means that the cost of production of that tray is significantly higher um, so we, we have had to adjust it. We believe it's, it's still reasonable. And in fact, we think that um, given the yields, that prices are going to be very high for mangoes in the shops. So we still think that uh, we, we're still, we still base our price around um, the end user, the end buyer, getting, uh, getting top quality mangoes uh, for less than what they'd buy in the shops. The mangoes travel far and wide and will soon be arriving in a tiny town in Victoria. Violet Town, two hours north of Melbourne, is a rural area with around 1,700 residents and they've signed up for the mango fundraiser for the first time this year. The Violet Town District Early Childhood Centre program leader, Michaela Nicholson, 
said the kids are very keen for the mangoes to make their way down south. We've gotten involved just through word of mouth through different people within our community and obviously down here in Violet Town there's not much of a mango, like not many mango farms because obviously we live in the cold. And yeah, we're just using the fundraiser to bring in a whole bunch of people from our community to get everyone involved within the kinder here and we're using the money to continue to provide and upgrade our resources and facilities to ensure the children are getting the best possible care and environment. The Mango Fundraiser has also provided a learning opportunity for the children. Being able to fundraise for the future turns me because there's so, so many things that I think are important for the kids to have access to and I think without the PNC being able to partly fund, number one, I think parents are going to struggle to, to pay and we're trying to supplement that. So in the future, I just worry that the kids are going to miss out. It's an added bonus for mango grower Daniel Lafer. It is good to teach um, kids and, and the customers in general that mangoes that aren't just manufactured and appear in shops, that there is a complicated process involved in growing them and that, and that when you're in farming, um, you, don't just, you don't just get whatever you want. It, um, you've got to get what comes a lot of the time. North Queensland mango grower Daniel Lafer ending that report from Lucy Cooper with additional reporting from Abby Holter. It's a quarter to one. This is the Queensland Country Hour to a very different kind of problem for the avocado industry where oversupply has been a challenge for the past few seasons. They're now welcoming news that a major supermarket chain will stock only domestically grown avos. German family-owned company Aldi, which has about 12% of the domestic grocery market, will exclusively stock Australian avocados in all 586 of its stores. Avocados Australia Chief Executive John Tyus says the initiative will be a boon to three states' worth of growers who often have to compete with New Zealand product that's ready at the same time. He tells Sophie Landau he hopes the move will alleviate the green and gold glut. Yeah, well, it's... it's Terrific news that Aldi has decided to source 100% Australian avocados this summer. We've got very big volumes coming through this year. It's probably the biggest biggest crop we've ever had in uh, in the summer supply period, which is the Riverland and Southwest WA in particular. So it's great that that Aldi is going to source Australian only, and will really help alleviate some pressures on the market. And how long is this agreement for? So they've said uh, they'll commit for the coming the coming season. So this uh, this will go through until the end of this calendar year. Would you be hoping to extend that if all goes well? Yeah, well, we we can supply avocados all year round in in Australia, and New Zealand has traditionally supplied the Australian market during the spring summer period, which is when they produce. So, you know, after about February, March, there's no, you know, New Zealand can't supply. They're not producing sufficient avocados. So for the rest of the year, uh, we have uh, only Australian avocados available. Just for those who might be wondering how this will help our farmers, you know, how will this agreement help with the avocado glut? Well, it's just, it's making sure that Australian growers can supply their fruit to customers through Aldi retail stores. So all of their 587 stores nationally are going to be part of this. It comes into effect on the on the 13th of September. And we're hoping that your other retailers will follow suit. You know, retailers do have Australian first sourcing 
policies. But this year, because of the volume that we're now producing, we believe there's no need to source any imported fruit and Australia can supply all of the needs for Australian consumers. Do you think we're going to be seeing a trend in this way? You know, we know that Australians want to support farmers and we have seen some other arrangements like this for other Aussie products. Is What do you think of that? I think it'd be terrific, yeah, but I guess it's up to the individual retailers to decide whether they want to come on board. Do you have any stats around how many avocados Australians consume or purchase each year? Uh, last year, um, per capita consumption reached almost 4.8 kilograms per person, which is very high. We still think that there's room for further growth domestically, but Australian consumers are pretty strong avocado lovers. What's the long-term forecast for the avo industry? What are you looking at? Yes, yeah, so in 21-22, we, we've reached about 122,000 tonnes. Our forecast is to reach about 170,000 tonnes by 2026. So we're on a very steep growth curve. There's a lot of young orchards in the ground and you know, they're coming into production now. So we're expecting to see our supply volumes continue to increase over the next few years. Avocados Australia Chief Executive John Tyre speaking with Sophie Landau. It's 11 to 1. This is the Queensland Country Hour. Know a young person who's up to something great? The ABC is looking for trailblazers aged 18 to 28 who are doing inspiring things in their regional town. We want to feature stories of people who have great ideas and who care about their communities. We're often missed in conversations. We need to be included. Trailblazers will have their work featured on the ABC and receive an amazing package of support. Hurry, applications close October 4. Apply now for the Trailblazer program at abc.net.au slash trailblazers. Really a shortage of trailblazers in Queensland. I'd love to see some of those applications come through and see what you're all getting up to uh, in that uh, in that spare time that we so rarely have. 0487 is the number to send me a text. I've been asking you about the timber in your home, assuming your home's timber. Maybe you didn't use timber. Maybe you used some other Australian product for your home or your you know, shed or your stables even, zero four eight seven double nine three triple two. If you'd like to share the story of the, the construction of your home, I'd love to hear it. Send me a text. You've got about 10 minutes before we head to the news. Speaking of building things, build it and they will come. It's that age-old motto that appears to have worked for Kalula Berry's agritourism venture, which is drawing a steady stream of visitors to the country at the peak of the strawberry season. Owner Jason Lewis tells Jennifer Nichols about this change in the family business plan and how that's affected the pace of life on the farm. Oh gee, busy. Really busy, Jen. So fantastic season. Uh, No rain until recently, which is really good for berries. Cool nights, warm days. Just perfect. And tell me about your operation now, because it has changed. Absolutely. So we've come to a decision where we're going to open for five months a year, so just the um, the strawberry season, which is the nicest time of the year to visit the farm, and then that way we can freshen up and, and get ready for next year. So we're opening 1st of May to the 1st of October. And what's the interest been like this year? Uh, absolutely madness. We are so busy, it is just amazing. So the support has been really just overwhelming, yeah. You're not exactly 
on the beaten track. No, we're a little bit out of the way, but you know, you show people a good time, show them a real experience, a true, really good agritourism experience, they'll come back and they'll bring their friends. So, you know, it's a really big thanks to all our customers because people who come and enjoy it come back with their friends to share it and share it with us, so it's very nice. And so what sorts of things are you doing on the farm now? Uh, we're mainly picking strawberries, so we've got four weeks to go today to the end of the season. Um, the fruit has just been magnificent. Um, people have been you know, picking kilos and kilos and kilos and eating kilos, which is fantastic to see. Um, jam making, we're, um, we're doing our cider, so everything's happening as normal. Um, we had a bit of a disaster last year, so it's really good to be ahead this year. It's been really good. Yeah, you had quite significant flooding, wiping out your land and dead strawberries as well. Yeah, that's right. That was last year, so we, you know, we're concentrated on this year and we've actually been that busy. It hasn't even crossed my mind to think about last year. So what does an average weekend look like? Oh, gee, Saturday probably 300 people through, Sunday between 500 and 800 people. So, you know, people come and stay. Some stay for 20 minutes, pick their strawberries and off to the beach they go. Um, others will turn up in the morning, have breakfast in a couple of hours. Others will turn up at 11 o'clock and still there at 5. So, you know, you know, everyone's just welcome to, to, to do what they like and, and uh, it's good to have them all. And you're also the president of Slow Food Noosa. How much do you think that connection with your customers plays a valuable role in their education about agriculture? Oh, it's absolutely huge. So 2015, before I became uh, involved with Slow Food, my ambitions was to grow as many strawberries as I could possibly grow and sell to Coles and Woolies. Uh, trip to Italy on the way back, I said to my wife, Kim, you know, this is insane. Let's just do small scale. Let's be good at it and let's share it with people. And, um, you know, we've been sharing with people ever since then. And that's been the secret to our success. You've invested a lot in the property. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But um, also invested a lot emotionally and time, even so more so than money. Um, you know, and it's paid off with the loyalty of, of people that visit. And how sustainable is it? Because you're getting older. <laughs> that farming is hard on the body. Absolutely. So this is the first year I can honestly say I haven't picked every strawberry for the last few years. Um, I have actually have a farm worker to pick this year, which has been wonderful. Um, so that gives me more time to talk about what we do. Um, I help in the kitchen, you know, I'm, I'm hands-on, but it's all about, you know, talking to people and sharing our experience. So, yeah, so I am getting older. I'm 50 this year, so... Um... Oh, so ancient. <laughs> yes, I know, very... <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, there's got to be a point of time when you realise, you know, work's not everything and, you know, it's, and, and, and we've always been the same, you know, making money has never been our priority. Showing people a good time and, and, and having them enjoy themselves has been our priority. And have you still been cooking up on that gigantic wok? Yeah, paella is still, still very, uh, very well wanted. We, um, we, I think we cooked four pans, paella's last Sunday. And are you finding the new balance better for your sanity? Oh, absolutely. So the, the five months a year open to the public is wonderful. It really gives me time to look after the strawberries when we plant them. So you plant in March, so I can spend more time you know, getting them right. So by the time we open in May, we have fruit and um, we're up and running. So it, it has paid dividends yes and how have your blueberries been going is that unmentionable no no blueberries are still good um, we've picked them in january the only trouble is that they they sort of uh, are going to be in the middle of my holidays so I, ha I have to come home to pick blueberries and then i can go back on holidays again so some have mentioned now that i'm only opening five months a year i have a part-time job or a hobby now not actually a, a full-time job yes <laughs> But your wife Kim's working off farm now too, isn't she? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, she's furthering her um her professional job, which is wonderful. So and she works in health, doesn't she? Yeah, in Queensland Health. Yeah, you know, and it's a good thing with farming because you know 
if we don't get rain over the summer, you know, there's there's no guarantee we'll plant strawberries next year because we're nearly out of water now. So, you know, so you get up in the morning and, you know, you're not looking up the sky thinking if, if you're not going to rain, how are we going to pay our bills next year? We have that as a backup. So that's really good. Jason Lewis from Kalula Berries at Woolwai speaking to Jennifer Nichols. Now, before we get to the markets, I do want to let you know that Queensland Fire and Emergency Service has issued a stay-in-form advice advice for for a fire in the Coonar area southeast of Bundaberg. This is the area where there was that emergency warning for the blaze on Monday. It has been burning in the Burham Coast National Park since Sunday, and it's really close to that Palm Beach Road area. There are ground crews and firefighting aircraft working in the area, and if you are around that sort of Coonar space, it's definitely worth uh, keeping informed of the advice from the fireys. And if you're not in that space, it's worth knowing there is a high fire danger for other parts of Queensland too, the Gulf Country, Northern Goldfields and Upper Flinders, Central Highlands and Coalfields, Central West and Northwest Districts are also under a high fire danger. Gusty conditions expected middle of next week too. So if you haven't already, maybe it's worth putting aside some time this weekend to take a look at your bushfire survival plan. Your fire plan should consider what you'll do if you and your family cannot leave your property and are forced to escape from a burning house during an intense bushfire. You need to think about when you would leave, what you'd take and what you'd do with your pets. Being prepared with contingency plans for different scenarios will help to keep you calm and increase your chances of survival. Keep listening to ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. Let's head to the Dolby cattle sale where prices have been down again. Trevor Hess has the details. Good afternoon. The number of cattle penned to Dolby today experienced an increase of 466 head to 3,841. The number of stock from far western Queensland reduced this week to 192 head, along with 280 from New South Wales. Export buyer attendance was not as good as the previous sale, with a number of operators absent from the buying panel. Prices at the time of this interim report have reduced across most classes. Yearling steers to feed averaged 5 to 24 less, medium weight yearling heifers to feed averaged 18 cheaper. All classes of cows experienced a much cheaper market to average 17 to 20 cents less. Medium weight yearling steers to feed averaged 255 and made to 298. Heavy weight yearling steers to feed made to 292 to average 269. Medium weight yearling heifers to feed averaged 197 and made to 204. Heavyweight yearling heifers to feed averaged 214, some to restockers at 240. Medium weight two score cows averaged 155 and made to 164. Heavyweight three score cows averaged 183, the best of the heavyweight cows to 200 to average 196. This has been Trevor Hess from MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. To Charters Towers with Mick Kingham. Good afternoon. The supply of cattle lifted by 325 for a yarning of 1,473. Quality was mixed with reduced numbers of well-finished bullocks and cows. However, some good lines of store cattle were penned. The buyer panel consisted of most regular processors and feeders, two live exporters and opportunity restockers, with cattle drawn from wet Mount Isa in the west, east to coastal areas in the local area. Demand was selective throughout, with better quality lines attracting good support. However, secondary lines attracted limited competition. Bullocks eased 20 cents, cows to processors were mostly firm, and heavy bulls averaged firm to 10 cents better. 
a good sample of yearling steers, above 330 kilos to feed, sold to 212 to average 209. Heifers above 330 kilos to feed, made to 176 to average 162 cents a kilo. A good supply of grown steers, above 400 kilos to feed, average 177 with sales to 206. Grown heifers as a processor, sold to 186 to average from 169 to 183. Heavy full-mouth bullocks to export slaughter, sold to 210. Thank you very much, Mick. That's it for the Queensland Country Hour today. Thanks for sharing the story of the timber in your home. Russ, I see your message there. He's got timber from Old Brett's Wharf in Brisbane in his place. Amazing. Keep listening to the latest from ABC News now and tune in from a quarter past six tomorrow morning for your Rural Report. I'm Callie Buchanan. It's one o'clock.